I think if we're honest, we will admit that sometimes in our walk with Christ, we feel that God's commandments deprive us of something good, something that we really want. We, when, when we are tempted, we may think, I know God doesn't want me to do this. I know God doesn't want me to do this, but my desire is so strong. Um, why have you, God, withheld this particular thing from me? Does God withhold things from us because he doesn't want us to have good things? We may begin to suspect that God is more of a blessing thief than he is a blessing benefactor, which uncovers inside of us a, a skewed perspective of good and evil. Now, this is tough. We want to live for Jesus. We want to live for the glory of God, and yet in us is a strong desire to pursue sensual pleasures. And if we're not careful, we can actually deep down envy people who live without moral restraint. Is it really worth it to honor and obey and fear and serve God? We have strong desires inside us, and we see others uh, indulging those desires without restraint, and we question God's goodness. The promises of God don't always seem like the road to our greatest joy and pleasure, especially when God's will leads us right into suffering. The intensity of our sensual and sinful desires can overshadow the goodness and advantage of God's promises. Our sensual desires and Satan himself fight together to veil or to cover the truth that it is entirely worth it to fear and serve the Lord. Now, this is a deep struggle with me, um, a lifestyle of unrestrained sensual pleasure is at times very appealing to my flesh. Yours too, if you're honest. The, the life of a hedonist has a certain allure. But years ago, when I was in my early 20s, I encountered the idea of Christian hedonism through the ministry of John Piper, and it transformed my life and theology. Christian hedonism essentially says that God is the greatest good to be enjoyed, that all other pleasures pale in comparison to Him, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Christian hedonism says that we as human beings should actually pursue our greatest pleasure, but not in the things of the world, rather in God Himself, who is superlative pleasure. Pleasure in God should be the sole aim of our life because when it is, we glorify the sufficiency and the supremacy of God. The idea of Christian hedonism transformed my view of joy, my view of pleasure, as well as my approach to interpreting Scripture. I began to see things in God's Word that I didn't see before and interpret them differently. And this this idea of Christian hedonism has helped me fight my flesh and pursue Christ above the myriad of lesser pleasures. Christian hedonism affirms the truth that everybody wants to be happy. 
But then it says that the only way to be truly happy, the only way to maximize your happiness is to be happy in God. That in God is critical. With this view, Scripture becomes then a self, God's self-revelation which draws us closer to Him to experience His glory more fully and therein that experience of the, the, the fullness of God's glory we experience more joy in Him. Scripture is not simply laws and statutes and rules and prohibitions, but rather prescriptions showing people how to be as happy as they possibly can be in knowing God. Psalm 16 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. When was the last time that you disobeyed God and it gave you the fullness of joy? When was the last time that you disobeyed God and that pleasure from that sin just kept going and going and going and going and going? Would you actually say that the pleasure you experience in sin lasts forever? Does it last a week? Does it last a day? We all know the pleasures of this life are momentary. They are here for a moment. They are gone the next, gone in a flash, leaving a wake of guilt to deal with. So I'm going to try to make one point this morning. Trust the Holy Spirit to work Uh, I'd like you to repeat the point after me. I don't do a lot of this. You don't need to believe the point. You don't even need to be living the point right now. I just want you to say it. I, I, I want us to say it together. So repeat after me. I'll break it up in two sections. When I fear and serve God, I will have my greatest gain and gladness in Christ. When I fear and serve God, I will have my greatest gain and gladness in Christ. Right there is the key to your happiness. And I want to show you from Malachi why this statement is entirely true. Why it is in your best interest to fear and serve God. Here's where I'd like to start. It is never vain and unprofitable to fear and serve God. So don't envy the wicked. If you remember, Malachi prophesied to Judah after they had returned home from Babylonian exile and after they had rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, God had promised them through Haggai and Zechariah that his blessing, prosperity, expansion, peace, and presence would return to them. However, after their return home, Judah continued their faithlessness, their rebellion against God, and they didn't experience God's blessings, those promises as they had expected. They lived beneath the boot of the Persian Empire, and they languished in economic and national insignificance. In their disappointment and disillusionment, they continued their spiritual and moral decline. They looked around at the pagan nations and saw power, prestige, and prosperity, and they wondered why God wasn't blessing them, why God favored the pagan nations. 
They, they looked at the nations with envy, wanting what pagans seemed to be getting. If fearing and serving God made no practical and temporal difference in their life, didn't make them immediately comfortable, then why not abandon the whole God thing, abandon the whole worship thing, and just be like everyone else? And just indulge in immorality. If it's not going to make a difference, maybe that would increase their chances at immediate worldly happiness. A covenant relationship with God seemed useless. Useless. Throughout Malachi, we've heard Israel question God, and God was wearied of it. In verse 13, God added, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. Hard against me. Now imagine God saying that the the language in which you approach him is filled with severe antagonism. That's how he hears your words. Hard against me. Listen to how spiritually clueless, if you want to say it that way, or hardened Israel really was. Once again, God said, but you say, how have we spoken against you? That's repetitive. They just could not see how they were, how far they had had been from God, how antagonistic they had become. And here is what they had said, verses 14 and 15. It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Working hard to follow God's statutes seemed useless. Why do it? Carrying out God's assigned duty seemed unprofitable. It's not gaining us anything. Israel's mourning was ritualistic and insincere. Uh, Taylor and Clendenin note this. Quote, the people's rituals of mournful repentance were purely exhibitions intended to attract God's attention and win his favor. End of quote. Their repentance was insincere and selfish and appeared unsuccessful. Notice in these verses, Israel was grumbling to each other and their grumbling was laden with doubt. They essentially saw no use in serving God, and then they griped about it with each other. Now, I think that we've all been there in one way or another. What good is it to fear and serve God if it doesn't profit me right now? What good is it? Look at them. They're they're not fearing and serving God, and they look like they're having so much fun and getting all the good stuff of life. Why should I obey God if it means me missing out on so much that those people get to experience who don't follow God? Why, Why should I be different from everyone else if I'm the one that's going to suffer, if there's no immediate benefit for me right now? Think back to chapter 2, verse 17. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now, chapter 3, verse 15, Israel was saying, we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test, and they escape. You see, they lost sight of something important. They lost sight of how good and how lasting God's promises are. But I think they had become envious of the pagan nations, wanting to live that lifestyle. 
They were prosperous. Why not be like them? And then they were griping that they had to languish under the law of God. They doubted that fearing and serving God made any difference. Does fearing and serving God make a difference? Uh, Is fearing and serving God really better than the Hollywood lifestyle? Is fearing and serving God really better than spring break? Is fearing and serving God really better than unrestrained pursuit of temporal and worldly and sensual and physical pleasure? Is fearing and serving God truly better than your old lifestyle when you look back at the way you used to live and now you're trying to follow Christ? Is it better than what you had when you did whatever it is you wanted to do? And you felt like you didn't answer to anybody that you were free and you just got to express it. Is following Jesus better than that? Is God worth it? I hope to show you through five arguments that fearing and serving the Lord is absolutely better. It is way better. That fearing and serving the Lord will ultimately make you happier than you could ever be going your own way. My aim is to build confidence in you in the spectacular promises of God. Here is why you should want to fear and serve the Lord. When you fear and serve the Lord, number one, he will remember in the end. This life is not all that there is. Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. The, the nation of Israel was apostate. However, within Israel was a small group of faithful believers who feared and served God and esteemed his great name. Well, we don't know how many there are, but verse 16 shows us that they existed. They encouraged one another. They probably uh, lamented the condition of Israel, their country, their nation, and, and God paid attention and heard them. Now, in the ancient world, kings would have these books or would have these ledgers containing the names of those who performed these great significant deeds. It was a historical count of a way for them to remember, to help them remember. So this book of remembrance in verse uh, 16 is a way of saying that God will remember. God will remember the people who feared him and esteemed his name. Back in 1899, the Cleveland Spiders, uh, at the time a National League baseball team, ended with a record of 20 wins and 134 losses. That's a worse record in Major League history. Now imagine that you're a player playing that incredibly long season, and you're just night after night getting pounded into the ground, losing game after game. That would be very, very hard to keep your head in it and to go out and to try to to perform at a top level. But imagine a rookie on that team with a bright future of head himself, incredible skill, and he's got his eyes focused on a World Series with a good team. Imagine him night after night going out there and giving everything he possibly has to make the plays, to get the hits, to steal the bases. I mean, he is going all out night after night on a horrible team. He'd play for his stats and earning a look from another better team. 
he'd be playing something for, uh, for something greater than the Cleveland Spiders because the scouts are going to look at the book. The scouts are going to see what his output has been. Now, I don't know if there was a rookie. I don't know if that happened. It probably didn't. But it illustrates that there can be great reward in giving 100% when everything around you is going down the drain is failing. There is a reward for those who can think past right now, who can work for something greater than right now. God will not forget to bless those who fear and serve him. When this life is over, God will remember every single person who feared and served him, and he will graciously bless them with eternal pleasure. It's worth it. Why? Because God will remember. When you fear and serve the Lord, number two, you will belong to him as his treasured possession. Verse 17 continues one of the most precious promises in all of the Bible. God says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. Was God talking about the entire nation of Israel? And the answer is no, he wasn't. He was talking about those who feared him and esteemed his name, or those whose name were in the book of remembrance. Malachi was echoing a promise that God had given back in the law of Moses, Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, God said, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God intended to gather a people to himself as his treasured possession. He promised to do it, and he would do it through Christ. The apostle Peter told Christians now in the New Testament, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All throughout history, God has been graciously making a treasured possession for himself. The day is coming, the judgment day, the day of distinction when God will make up his treasured possession and all those who feared and served him in this life will belong to him and will be prized by him forever. God will consider them precious and valuable treasures for his own pleasure. Fearing and serving God is worth it. It's worth it. No matter what suffering, no matter what persecution or marginalization or humiliation comes to us because of following Jesus Christ, the day of our delight is coming when God makes it known to everyone, reveals this great truth that we belong to him and he delights in us. It's worth it, my friends. It's worth it. When it begins to feel vain to serve God, useless to serve God, why would we even do this? As if it profits you nothing to obey him now. As if you're missing out on something good, something you really want, something that God is withholding from you because you've chosen righteousness and everyone else has chosen to indulge 
Fight temptation. Fight the temptation to envy the wicked by remembering that in a short time, the Lord will make it known that you have feared and served Him and that you belong to Him as His treasured possession. Think of how good it will feel to you when God reveals that you are His treasure. Now, how good, it, how good was it on the playground to hear our name called first in that game of kickball. All right, some of you are like, never happened. I'm awful at kickball. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but some of us are athletic. How good was it for, for that popular person to pay attention to you and to give you the compliment? How good was it when your name was announced that you won the prize? You get it. Those are moments of pleasure. Those moments of pleasure will pale in comparison to God saying, he is my treasure. She is my treasure. It will be worth it to be considered part of God's treasured possession, to be beneficiaries of all of his loving and gracious promises and covenant blessings and privileges. When you fear and serve the Lord, number three, he will spare you as a father compassionately spares his faithful son. God added in verse 17, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Now, father, you fathers know this, how deeply you love your children, your sons, your daughters. And when the son serves the father faithfully, the father will spare his son, which has the sense of showing pity or showing compassion or showing leniency to his son. God had already identified himself as Israel's father back in chapter 1, verse 6. So, as verse 14 shows, here Israel, the son, was saying about God their father, it is vain to serve God. And God was saying to Israel, his son, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Meaning, God would lovingly and compassionately spare the faithful sons and daughters of Israel who served him. Many rebelled in Israel, but there were some who were faithful to God their father. And God promised those who served him an incredible gift, they would be spared. Now, I ask the question, spared from what? Spared from what? And I want you to listen very carefully to what God said through Malachi. It is very important that you understand this. A lot of people aren't saying, they're not talking this way today. Here's what they were spared from. Chapter chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Jesus Christ is coming with fury as a consuming fire to set his enemies ablaze, and he is terrifying. This is a picture of the return of Christ and what happens to all the arrogant and all evildoers. And though terrifying, 
This is tremendous comfort for everyone who fears and serves God, as well as inevitable doom for those who don't. Ovens were used for cooking. They would heat this fire down below, and it would heat up the entire oven, the sides and everything, so that the intensity of the heat was more than an open flame. It's just hotter and hotter. The judgment day of God will be so intensely hot and fierce that it will consume the wicked like a fiery oven consumes straw. Stubble, that's the worthless stuff left over after harvest. The dried up waste. The effect of this fire is so much different than the effect of the refiner's fire Of chapter 3, verse 2. This fire in chapter 4, verse 1 is a vengeful fire. It is a just fire. God will light the wicked ablaze with his just and fiery wrath so that they are destroyed from root to branch. They have no anchor. They have no strength. They have no root. They have no life. They have no branch or prosperity or life. The wicked will be incinerated in the inferno, inferno of God's holy justice. One short little article I read said this about God's fire. I thought this was helpful. As a matter of fact, all of the biblical authors agree that God's love and God's judgment are actually two sides of the same coin. Fire can burn. Fire can also provide warmth and comfort. It all depends on where we stand in relationship to the flame. There is a view among many churches that God is different in the Old Testament than what he is in the New. They see him in the Old Testament as being angry and malicious and violent. But in the New Testament, hey, he's all about love. He's just overflowing and gushy, lovey, lovey all the time. And that view is absurd and shows how biblically illiterate many professing Christians have become, God made it quite simple, for I, the Lord, do not change. He is the same yesterday, he is the same today, he will always be the same. He he is now as loving as he always has been, he is now as just as he always has been. David Murray, who's a good thinker, addressed this question, is God different in the Old Testament than he is in the New, and suggested the reason why people are confused about this. And he said, because people don't read their Bibles. He said, I think that's the biggest caricature out there at the moment in many ways. And I think the conclusion, God is different in the Old Testament compared to the New, is based on ignorance. I strongly believe if people really read their Old Testament, they would see that God is the same. End of quote. My friends, read Jesus in the Gospels. Read Revelation 19 about the day Jesus returns. Is Jesus Christ any less severe in the New Testament than here in Malachi? No. He's equally as severe. Malachi prophesied of John the Baptist, the messenger sent to prepare the way for Christ, and John said this about Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus does that. Jesus said about himself now, 
The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If we take God's word seriously, we must conclude that it is Jesus Christ who justly authorizes the destruction of the wicked in hell. His judgment sets the wicked forever ablaze. And it is through his life, death, and resurrection that those who fear and serve God are spared, graciously spared. So yes, it is worth it to find our greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ and therein avoid his soon-arriving glorious blaze. So when temptation rages and you feel like giving in, and when the wicked appear to be having all the fun in their immorality, unrestrained pursuit of sensual and physical pleasure, Remember that the day of Jesus Christ is coming when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be burned to stubble and the righteous will be spared to eternal joy. Let us delight in the love and compassion of God to a greater degree because he has spared us in Christ from his divine and righteous fury. That's why it's good to fear and serve God. When you fear and serve the Lord, number four, you will eventually see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Nowadays, people just want to blur all the lines almost as if everybody gets saved. It's just universalism. Throughout Malachi, most obviously in chapter 2, verse 17, Israel questioned whether God made any distinction between the righteous and the wicked. But God shows in Malachi that he does, in fact, make a distinction between them. And his loving covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob validates it. That they're right from the beginning of the book, that there is an incredible difference. In the end day, when God makes up his treasured possession, and graciously spares a remnant, something important is made absolutely clear. Cannot argue with it. Verse 18. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Again, Israel will see the stark difference between God's people and God's enemies. You know God has enemies. And God has a people, and they are different groups. We have the faithful, and we have the faithless. Now, we need to be very careful at this point to define the terms righteous and wicked to make sure that we don't veer off here. The gospel defines the righteous as those who admit and repent of their unrighteousness. You following me? And they trust Jesus Christ as their righteousness. It is only through faith that the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to those who trust in him. We see that in Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The wicked then are not those who are by nature worse than those who are counted in Christ as righteous, that those that are saved by faith, but rather 
They are unbelievers who fail to receive their righteousness in Jesus Christ by rejecting Jesus Christ. That's the difference, faith. Faith. They reject Jesus and therein they remain in their wicked state. Those who admit their wicked state run to Jesus, trust in his righteousness. All of his righteousness is given to them and they are counted positionally righteous in Christ. Therefore, those who fear and serve God, fear and serve God by sovereign grace and covenant and spirit. And those who don't fear God or serve him do so by their own depraved will and choice. In the last day when God declares they are mine, it will glorify not the goodness of the righteous, but his sovereign grace and righteousness in Jesus Christ. It will show not the goodness of man, And the greatness of his service to God. Oh, how faithful I have been. And I belong to him. Look how much better I am than those people who are perishing. That's not it. It will rather reveal the greatness of God's grace in Christ who perfectly served God and who perfectly served us to be our righteousness. At the same time, when the end day comes, burning like an oven, and the wicked are set ablaze and reduced to stubble, the justice of God will in the same way be magnified and glorified. In that eternal distinction, God is glorified, and you and I will be there to see his glory. It may seem that the wicked are getting ahead right now, that they're the ones that have favor, that they're the ones having fun, but don't believe it. Don't you believe that lie because the day of distinction is coming. When you fear and serve the Lord, number five, you will have your greatest gain and gladness in Christ. This is such a sweet passage of Scripture. Chapter four, verse one, explains what happens on the final day to the wicked. But you see, verses 2 and 3 explain what happens to the righteous. And here is why it is eternally, not just for a little bit, couple years, like 120, 150 years. This is why it's eternally beneficial and worth it to follow Jesus Christ. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This glorious promise is only for those who fear and serve God, who who fear his name in this life. And this promise is an amazing promise. What does the son of righteousness refer to? Well, here's my take on it. I hope to quickly build this case for you. Psalm 84, verse 11 refers to God as a son, S-U-N. Isaiah 60 talks about the glory of the Lord rising upon Israel and the Lord rising upon Israel and his glory being seen upon Israel. It also mentions that the son uh, will be no more, but the Lord will be the everlasting life. Then in Luke 1, in Zechariah's prophecy about his son, John the Baptist, Zechariah, referred to the coming of the Lord and said, 
The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. Then Jesus said in John 18, 12, I am the light of the world. And then in John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light. Then Jeremiah 23, verse 6, the name of Judah will be the Lord is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus Christ became righteousness. Include 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where Jesus Christ is referred to as the righteous. Consider the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. When you put it all together, Jesus Christ is the son of righteousness that has come and has risen to heal God's people. His coming is the dawn which brings light and heat and restoration to the world. How does he heal? Isaiah 53 verse 5 explains, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds... My friends, with his wounds, we are healed. How do the faithful respond to this blazing and glorious sun rising to heal? I want you to imagine, we're in Lancaster County, this is so fitting, this healthy, fat Lancaster County calf that is jumping playfully, leaving the stall into the field, just, you know, horsing around. (laughs) Yeah, that's weird. That wasn't in the notes. But he's well fed, he's well hydrated, he's well cared for, he's healthy, and he's just launching up and kicking out and having a great time because he is happy, he's frolicking in the pasture. That's a picture of exuberant joy. That's a picture of God's chosen people who are happy in Christ. Is it worth it to to fear and serve God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, when you consider the infinite joy and gladness experienced in God. But it's not simply joy, my friends. It's satisfying victory. Victory. Those who fear God's name will tread down the wicked in strength and sweet victory like the wicked were ashes beneath their feet. It may feel that they have one up on us now, but oh no, dear Christian, someday you will tread on them as they were ashes or dirt on the ground. Beneath your feet, ashes are a result of burning. When God acts, the righteous will win, they will conquer, they will overcome. Those who are in Christ will with Christ reign joyfully over all of His and their enemies. Do you know that? Listen, the pleasure of the wicked is so short-lived. You don't want to go down that road and experience it for just a little bit of time. It will end. It has an end. That pleasure is so, so minor, so insignificant, so much lesser than the pleasure of knowing God. It is short-lived. There will come a day that those who feared and served God, perhaps at the cost of great suffering, perhaps at the cost of their own life, will trample the wicked in sweet and glorious victory with Christ. It will be a glorious day of justice. It will be a glorious day of vindication. It will be a glorious day of joy. Is it worth it? Well, my question is, do you, whoop, here we go, getting charismatic, do you like winning? Is it worth it? Do you like winning? In fact, better, do you like dominating? People need to realize that 
indulging in the pleasures of sin now means losing an embarrassing and excruciating loss at the end day. Do you want this now? To suffer loss then when it counts? My friends, I, I resonate with it. Delayed gratification is very difficult. Anybody with me on that? No days. It's, it's tough, but it's hopeful when you realize how much greater that future blessing is than what you could have now. And, and when that proportion is right, then it makes sense. Oh, God, help me to wait. I don't want to ruin myself now just to have immediate and so temporary and so momentary gratification. It may appear that the wicked are having splendid fun with, with no accountability or consequences now, and it may appear that the righteous miss out on all kinds of pleasure and are weak and pathetic suckers who are just so, oh, man, it's those people. But it is only an appearance. It is only an appearance. It is not a reality. And in the end, those united to Christ will tread the wicked into the ground with Christ, and they will walk to their eternal joy in God. So is it worth it? Is the narrow, the hard, narrow, rigorous road worth it? Or is it better for us just to take the easy and wide road? So many people are going that, and it looks good now. Well, Jesus said it's the difference between life and destruction. He made it that easy. Only one road leads to life, the hard and narrow and arduous and difficult and painful road. Take that road. It's worth it. It's worth it. Take that road. It is infinitely better to fear and serve God. You have the Holy Spirit in you to help you do it. He doesn't just say, do it. Come on, you do it. No, here, I'll equip you to do it. Now walk with me. Follow my spirit. So, friends, you're not alone. Not only is Christ with you, you have a whole horde, a whole mass of people who are like you, who want to walk the hard, narrow road, and we walk it together. And Jesus is so good to us as we walk this hard road to our greatest joy and pleasure forever. Because when we walk with Christ and when we walk with the saints, we will arrive to see God. And in that moment, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. I promise you that. Um, this is very difficult because, you know, when you look at your own life and the pleasures that you have, you do get envious sometimes. Why not just live it up like them? I want that for some sick and twisted reason. I wish I could do that. But I have to abide by these laws and these statutes and all these things that I can't even do and I don't even want to do half the time. And Jesus is there saying, it's worth it. 
I'm worth it. Because your day is coming when you will see my glory and be rewarded for fearing and serving me. It's worth it, friends. Please believe that and turn from your sin and trust in the supremacy of Christ. He won't let you down. You will be rewarded. It's just his grace in you. It's not that you earn the reward, but good things are coming for those who fear and serve the Lord. Please. Please, please, please. You don't have pray that God would give me tears because when you preach hell people don't think it's real you will be destroyed if, God, if you do not fear and serve Christ he is coming for you and he will kill you unless you bow the knee and you find your greatest joy in him and then he's your best friend who will reward you forever with eternal joy. Could we please just park on that message and believe it with all of our heart because it's true. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will break our hearts for our own sin. You've been very gracious to me, God, in this moment. I thank you for my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you will encourage them with this very direct and astonishing message from Malachi, which has gospel written all over it. Jesus is in this passage, and he is magnificent. Help them to see his supremacy over all things and to cherish him above all else because he is worth it. And God, it's, it's a reality that here in our midst sit people who they, they don't get the emotion. They don't get Jesus. They're not tasting and treasuring him. They're far from you. They, they, they don't understand so much. They're not saved. So God, they're headed towards their eternal destruction and they're playing games with you and holiness. And so I pray that you will work your sovereign grace in their heart to save them this morning. Pull them from darkness. Place them into light where they can see the supremacy of Jesus and experience in him joy and peace and comfort and contentment. Oh God, may they be saved to joy, saved for joy. God, as we sing, I pray that we respond with everything we've got in joy at what Jesus is and what he has done for us. In his supreme name we pray, amen.